0: Uh, good morning again, everyone, and, and a real blessing to see you. I'm going to start with prayer first. This is the last um, sermon in this series, and uh, and I I'll need as much help as I can get. Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for your word. I thank you, dear Father, for your work within our lives. I thank you, dear Lord, for the testimonies that we have within the Word of God, within the Scriptures, that give to us, Lord, an understanding of the states and the hearts of so many people. And I ask and pray, dear Lord, that as we consider this last message in this series on heaven and hell this morning, I ask and pray, dear Lord, that it would be a work that would convict the hearts of many people who would hear, whether it be here or whether it be online, uh, whether it be sometime in the future. I pray, dear Father, that you would grant unto me the grace that I need, the wisdom that I need, and especially, dear Lord, the power of Your Spirit, dear Father, to do the work in people's lives. It's not be—it's not up to us, dear Father. We know that it's Your work. We ask, dear Lord, for Your grace and Your work within us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. It's a—it's an incredible thing to consider, you know, when you when you when you get up to to preach the Word of God, and it's it's one of those things that are dealing with with uh, the apt to teach series that we that we that I put together on on uh, those fortnightly Saturdays for the men, that we would have a recognition and understanding that every time you stand up to share something with regards to the Word of God, you have a chance to impact the life of somebody for all eternity. And there is nothing more important than this. There is, there is nothing that I could consider that is of greater value than anything within the world. And, and every, every single one of you that are here have that opportunity every single time you speak to someone. You can impact someone's life for all eternity. And we have an account here in the book of Acts of what had happened to Paul. Paul is standing before the king Agrippa and also before Festus. And as he's brought before them, because he's a prisoner at this stage and he's led into their hands, he's appealed unto Caesar that would Caesar would try his case and not that he'd be taken back to the Jews. He said he's not, he's, he's, he's not unwilling to die if he's, been, if he's done anything that, that is worthy of death. But he appealed unto Caesar that the, the proper process would be undertaken. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was born free. He was born free. And here he is in the book of Acts giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And he speaks about how he was against Christ and did everything he could to fight against not only Christ but also those against those who knew Christ and loved Christ. He took them away, took them in prison. Matter of fact, they were killed right before his own feet. And he was on his way to Damascus. He obtained letters from the high priest to do exactly the same thing in those areas. And this is the Damascus road that he's on and he sees this incredible vision, this incredible light turns out that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, he says something really, really pertinent. He says, how long will you kick against the pricks? How long will you kick against the pricks? The pricks are a cattle rod. Okay, so if you can imagine you know, you're, 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 you're ploughing a field with cattle in front and you need to spur them on, you need to get them moving in the right direction. So it's a, it's a stick with a sharp point at the end of them and it'll be sim- simply a prod in their, in their back end to um, to move them forward, but the cattle would kick against the pricks because it's, it's 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 painful. It's painful. But it was required to get them moving. And what we have here is the testimony of the apostle Paul, but it could be the testimony of of any one of us. I certainly know that I have kicked against those pricks, well and truly. But it can be certainly a description of all of us, and it's also a description of those who are yet to come to Christ. But the most incredible testimony of all was that by King Agrippa in that last verse Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The title of the sermon this morning is Almost Heaven. Almost Heaven. We've been dealing with a series on heaven and hell and I've, I've done three sermons on heaven most particularly. I've done one on death, this transition. I've only done one on the nature of, of hell and it's vitally an important... Do- if there's any doctrine in the Bible that's more important to teach about, it is the doctrine of hell because otherwise nothing else really has any value. Christ doesn't have any value if there was, if there was no hell to be, to be concerned about. Um, So it is a vitally important doctrine to be able to understand. But this one here, this one is more about the people who were there. The people who have had almost heaven. Almost heaven. It was in 1912 when John Harper was asked to return to the United States and continue his missionary work to the lost in Moody Church in Chicago. He was a Scottish evangelist, a widower, and he'd be bringing his six-year-old daughter with him. He booked his ticket on the Lusitania for April of that year, but an opportunity came up for him to take a a brand-new luxury liner. So John Harper decided to delay his departure for one week, and he secured tickets for himself and his six-year-old daughter to sail from Southampton, England, to New York on the 10th of April 1912 on the Titanic. On Sunday the 14th of April 1912, the day when the iceberg struck the ill-fated liner, the weather was fine, the sea was calm, Harper attended the church service for the passengers. The Titanic struck an iceberg at 11.40pm that night. As the call was issued for passengers to vacate their cabins, Harper Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket and he told her that she would see him again one day and passed her to one of the crewmen. As a father and a widower, John Harper was one of the few men permitted to enter into a lifeboat. But after watching his daughter safely board, he removed his jacket and gave it to one of the other passengers who he believed was not saved. One survivor spoke of this preacher and distinctly remembered hearing him shout, women, children and the unsaved into the lifeboats." Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not ready. Harper then ran along the decks, pleading with people to turn to Christ, and with the ship sinking, witnesses stated that he called upon the Titanic's orchestra to play, Nearer My God to Thee. As the ship began to lurch, he jumped into the icy waters and he swam to all he could reach. Is your soul saved? He was heard to cry out to each person he could in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. Hundreds of people were in the water, but only six individuals were rescued out of the water and into a lifeboat. Is your soul saved? came the cry again. No, came many responses. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, came his answer again. Finally, as hypothermia set in, John Harper sank beneath the waters and passed into the Lord's presence. He was 39 years of age. How many were eternally saved from before they succumbed to the deep? How many were almost eternally lost that night? How many? More concerning of all, how many were almost saved? How many had attained almost heaven? King Agrippa in our text this morning was one such individual. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost heaven. How much will those very words haunt him for all eternity? What of those on the Titanic who heard John Harper's selfless cry? Is thy soul saved? Uh, they knew they were in the waters. The waters there were ice. He struck, the, the ship struck an iceberg, beloved, which were in the waters. It wasn't like you know, we worry about jumping into a swimming pool when it's only 15 degrees. These, this, you're talking nearly zero temperature of the water. Sadly, the evidence that we have in the Bible is that there will be far too many people in hell who had almost, almost heaven. How many in this room, how many who hear this sermon are going to be spending eternity crying? Almost, almost, almost was my soul saved, almost heaven. The last time we gave some facts respecting the purpose of hell, this week we're going to be considering six groups of people who had almost heaven. And the first is the unsaved church member. The first is the unsaved church member. The example that we set before us within the scriptures is Judas Iscariot. He was directly chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ as one of the twelve who had multiple opportunities to believe the gospel but chose rather to betray Christ for thirty pieces of silver. He had almost heaven. Judas was called to the apostleship and was expected to be with the twelve. He was numbered with them. He was a member, no doubt, of the group. Chosen by Christ. He was a member of the church. Acts chapter 1. Turn there with me. Have a look. Acts chapter 1. You're in the book of Acts. If you're still there, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. Three verses we'll have a look at. Peter stood up and he spoke and he testified to this very reality respecting Judas. Acts chapter one and verse sixteen. Peter states here, saying Who on there? Acts one, sixteen. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. There shall be multitudes in hell who have trusted that their church membership will save them. There will be multitudes of individuals in hell who will be testifying and saying that they have been baptised that they've been baptised, they're all good, we're members of a church, we are heaven bound. But they have almost heaven, almost heaven, and almost heaven is not heaven at all. These would be numbered with other members of the church who are indeed saved. They're baptised, but they are not known of Christ They might indeed have done many miracles in his name. They might have even cast out devils in his name. But Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Many will be in that day that say unto me, Lord, Lord, but I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7. It's the scariest chapter in the Bible for those who believe themselves to be saved but are lost. How frightening... That day will be when these church members, and there will be many according to the scriptures, how frightening will be the realisation that they had almost heaven, almost heaven. I was there, I sat in the pews, I sat in the church, I listened to the gospel, I listened to the preacher. Sorry. It's an empty box. There, were, there will be many people in that state. One of the things that's difficult, beloved, as a pastor, I can't confirm whether or not an individual is saved. A pastor can't confirm your salvation. They can only look for indicators. And if they're careful in their duty, they will not baptise a single soul. Thank you, brother. They wouldn't baptise a single soul that is not born again if they're careful. There'll be questions to ask and questions to ask that will testify of your own salvation but ultimately only God knows the heart and only you who are and have the Spirit of God or potentially the Spirit of God can testify to the truth of it. No man can know whether or not another man is truly saved. Not 100%. Not 100%. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writes, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. There's three calls at least in the scriptures that we are to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. We need to know whether or not we are truly born again. And I could ask you those seven questions and you might answer them perfectly perfectly. And so you might become a church member. You might be baptised. You might get your little certificate. You're going to need your little certificate. You've got to show it to Peter. Don't lose it. Don't lose it because you're not going to be able to get in otherwise. They don't have QR codes in heaven. Be aware that it's not the certificate that's going to save you. It's not your baptism that's going to save you. It's not your membership in a church that's going to save you. It is whether or not you are born again. He writes in the Hebrews, book of Hebrews, says, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. There will be multitudes of church members in hell who obtained almost heaven. How great and infinite is going to be their cry. The second individual who will find himself there is the procrastinator the procrastinator. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Before you were in Acts chapter 26 you were listening to Agrippa. Felix was there. Now listen to Felix in Acts chapter 24 a couple of chapters beforehand. Acts chapter 24. Consider this example as a procrastinator. Acts 24 and verse 24. We'll start there. Verse 24, and after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Go thy way. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. You can tremble at the Word of God when it's preached and you can have it affect you in that particular way and you can escape it temporarily. You can do that this side of eternity. You can do that. You can be offended at the Word of God. You can be convicted in heart. You can tremble at the words of the living God when it is preached and you can escape from it and wait for a convenient season but there is going to be a time in hell where you will not be able to escape. During the preaching of the most famous sermon in modern history by Jonathan Edwards, it was preached on the 8th of July, 1741. It was simply titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is, to this day, the single most famous sermon other than the ones that we might find in the scriptures. It was recorded that men held onto the rails of the pews fearing hell would quickly swallow them up at any moment. Quoting from a diary entry by the Reverend Stephen Williams who was present at that meeting, he writes this, "'And before ye sermon was done, "'there was a great moaning and crying, "'and throughout ye whole house, "'what shall I do to be saved? "'Oh, I am going to hell. "'Oh, what shall I do for Christ?' And yet ye minister was obliged to to desist. The shrieks and cries were piercing. Edwards was unable to to finish preaching that sermon on that instant. That evening, because of the trembling of the congregation. Reverend Williams goes on to write of Edwards himself, saying, he seemed affected and moved, ready to dissolve in tears, but can't well tell why. This is in his diary. That was in his diary entry. The trembling of the heart and the worry of the soul is not sufficient to save a man. It's not sufficient to save a man. So bothered was Felix by the message of Paul that he longed rather not to suffer further temporary trembling. He desired relief and rest for the conviction sparked by Paul's words. Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee, almost heaven. How many people have you preached to? How many people have you shared the gospel with who have been actually convicted by the word of God, convicted by what you said, but said, "Ah, I'm not ready yet. (laughs) Go thy way. Go thy way. The rich man being in torments. The phrase in Luke 16 is in the perfect present tense. It's in the perfect present tense. That means it is now present and ongoing. It doesn't, it's not concluded. The Bible says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, Revelation 14, 11. If you tremble now, and if you tremble now, don't wait for a convenient season. I think that's the point. If you tremble now, do not wait for a convenient season. Because you might have a temporary rest now, but you won't have a temporary rest later there should be no expectation of a convenient season. No expectation of being kept out of hell. One moment. Sorry. Of being kept out of hell even until tomorrow. One of the points of the famous sermon spoken by Jonathan Edwards was simply this. He said this, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will, had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever, any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. He writes on and he says, it is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that is now in health and that he, don't see that he don't see which way he should now immediately go out of this world by any accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect of his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows that this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity." go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Hell will be filled with such people who had the very opportunity to perfectly, perfectly presented with the gospel, even imperfectly presented with the gospel, who will tremble as Felix did and almost, almost, almost heaven but procrastinated for a more convenient season. The convenience season is now. It's been said that the greatest lie that has ever come out of the pit of hell is one simple phrase there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time. That was my mum. (laughs) That was my mum. I shared the gospel with her. I broke my heart to her with respect to the truth of it. But she was waiting. She was waiting for uh, something else. She was saying, I believe what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And I, and I believe that it's true, but I'm, I, just, I don't want to completely believe it right now. I, I just I want to wait until, just in case it's not true. It's, it's, it's a strange logic that she had. It was almost as if that was the only hope that she knew was potentially available for her, but if she believed it now and discovered that it was not true, then she would be miserable for the rest of her life because she knows there's no other hope. Other than in Christ, isn't that strange? I could understand what she was talking about, and I asked her, "What are you waiting for? You have no idea, number one, whether your affections are going to be tuned to Christ at a time where you're going to depart. You have no idea if you're going to be taken by an accident. You have no idea if you're going to, if your last breath is going to even have the time to consider anything other than what you're going through in that time." My mum ended up having cancer, and she suffered with it for several years, and. And then she was finally taken away. And I don't know. I don't know. There, there are things there that I, I've, I've mentioned it before that I think that she might be saved, but I don't know the answer to it. But I know that I did everything I could to share the hope of Christ with her. I couldn't do anything more than that. The third person in hell will be the unbeliever, and an interesting one at that. And I would, I would put to you that this unbeliever and these types of unbelievers had almost heaven. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. It's the testimony of Christ on the cross. And we, we, remember, we remember something very curious, and that was that there were two other malefactors with him. One on the one side, one on the other, as our, as our imagery provides for us there were two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 39, it says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paul writes in Romans 10, 13, saying, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be Saved. Here we have one of those who had called upon the name of the Lord and Jesus testifies that today you will be with me in paradise. All three that were on the cross knew that they would have no more time for life but to expire today. They knew they were about to die, just as those who were in the deep in the North Atlantic in 1912. They knew so close, however, was one of them to Christ. He had almost heaven, almost. So close he was to Christ, he could hear his dying breath. So close, he was to, so close was this thief to the king of kings, he could almost touch him. So he might have come to believe in Christ when he heard Jesus say to his friend, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And his soul was almost saved. Now, some 2,000 years later, I'm sure he's still saying, "Almost, almost." I was almost. I had almost heaven. I was right there. I was there. I was there beside Christ. I was there. Imagine his testimony to those that are in hell, if there was a company in hell, which the Bible doesn't present, but let's assume that there was. What would be his testimony? I was there. I was one of the. I was, I was the one crucified on the other side. I was right there. I saw the darkness fall upon the earth. I felt the earthquake while I hung upon that cross. My legs were broken in order to end my life. Christ was already gone. I seen the soldier pierce his flesh and I seen the blood and the water come out. I was almost saved. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine to consider within my mind what other plans he might have had to escape hell. I mean, could he have made some other plans? Was there any other option for him? He was up there as a thief, and justly so, according to his friend. He knew he would enter eternity shortly, but simply could not believe. One can only think that he had made other plans to escape hell. Have you made other plans? have you made other plans? Are they good? Are they sure? Did you climb in another way? Is that the plan to climb in another way? Jonathan Edwards speaks to this also in that famous sermon, imagining hearing a conversation of one who is in hell saying this, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at the time, and in that manner. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. I'll tell you a true story. The gentleman's name was Jurgen Achenbrand. He was a 69 year old individual who had the wonderful privilege of being interviewed by the famous evangelist Ray Comfort at Huntington Beach, California on a sunny December day. The video's up on YouTube, you can see it yourself. He heard the gospel from Ray Comfort many times because he would always find himself parked in the same bench, in the same place, on the same beach while Ray Comfort was sharing and preaching the gospel at the beach. He'd heard him preach often, but that day Ray preached to him personally. And again, you can see it on YouTube. He was a fit man who expected to live another 20 years. He did not believe in hell nor heaven. He shrugged his shoulders at the thought of being wrong about it. I'll find out when the time comes, he said. I've heard that expression a number of times when I've spoken to people. Ray had concerns for his flippancy and he asked if he might please consider the gospel, but it was clear that Jürgen had no intention of believing the gospel. He was committed to living the next 20 years and then seeing what happens. Jürgen Arkenbrand did not make it home from the beach that day. That very day. This is the news. I'll read the article. The incident was reported at 5:35 p.m. at the intersection of Brookhurst Street and Villa Pacific Drive, said Sergeant Rob Warden at the Huntington Beach, Beach of the Huntington Beach Police Department. Arkenbrand had a dark ha, Arkenbrand, Ankenbrand, and a dark-colored Toyota 4Runner were exiting Villa Pacific Drive onto Brockhurst Street when the driver turned left. To go north on Brockhurst Street and crashed with Akenbrand, who was moving in tandem along the driver's side of the forerunner, Akenbrand fell on the southbound lane and the driver fled the scene. Akenbrand was then struck a second time by a white Honda Odyssey van traveling south on Brookhurst Street. Akenbrand died at the scene, according to his own testimony seen on the YouTube video, Jürgen laid out matters otherwise in his own mind and he thought his schemes good, but it came upon him unexpected. But the fearful and unbelieving and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The unbeliever will find himself there even though he thinks he's laid out matters otherwise. He has almost heaven. The fourth is the moral person, the moral person. There's a lot of good people that are going to be in that place. Matthew 19, have a look at Matthew 19. We've got these examples. All these examples are in the scriptures and anybody who has testified to the gospel to other people would recognise these. The moral person. Matthew chapter 19. We remember this young man. He's known as the rich young ruler in other passages. Matthew 19 verse 16. We'll take from 16 to 22. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honour thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me; but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, that he had great possessions, so close, so close, he could touch it, so close he could touch it almost almost heaven this this young moral man had done no wrong according to his own evaluation, he'd killed never killed anyone, he never committed adultery, he never stolen, he never lied, he honoured his parents and apparently he loved his neighbour. The moral person is indeed one who is a good husband or a good wife, always has been a good father or or a good mother, pays his bills, he honours the laws of the land. There are no civic sins associated with the moral person and we all know people this way. There's a lot of people that I've known this way that are just, they're just good people. They're good people. They love other people. And I'm being very sincere with regards to this. They're good people. Speaking of the same man in Luke's account, Christ says, yet lackest thou one thing. Come, follow me. Luke 18:22. Almost heaven. Only come and follow me, says Christ. Beloved, it's not the horizontal relationship of moral goodness that separates man from God. It's the vertical one. That's the problem. It's not a horizontal relationship. We keep talking about, you know, oh, I don't hurt other people. I don't do wrong things by people. I, I do good things by people. And the horizontal relationship could be absolutely perfect. And we've known many that are that way. It's not the horizontal relationship that separates us from Christ. It's the vertical one. We've got a broken separate, We've got a broken relationship with God. It's completely broken. It's not there. And that's why Christ came. That's why he died. That's why he came to mend. And that's what it's incumbent upon every individual to believe the gospel, that it may be mended. The moral law is given to us in Exodus chapter 20, not to follow, to gain eternal life, but to reveal that no matter of how moral we are in civic terms, we are still sinners before a holy God. It was Isaiah who wrote of the value of our morality before God, you remember it? Saying, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Paul wrote the purpose of the law in Romans 3.20. He says, therefore, by the deeds, listen to this, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why? Why? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments are there as a mirror. You want to know what you look like? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Chances are you're going to see your reflection. You know, And there are going to be things within that reflection that you're going to be considering as imperfect. Well, that's exactly what the law is. The law is a mirror. It shows us where our moral state truly is and it compares us. It was in Galatians. Paul speaks about it in Galatians. He speaks about the law as a schoolmaster. Do you know what it's a schoolmaster for? It's a schoolmaster to prepare us for Christ. The law is a schoolmaster to prepare us, to help us realise that we are lost, that we are not as good as what we think we are. And before God, we stand under judgement. In Galatians 3.24, he says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by Faith, faith. Yes, beloved, a moral person is so close to trusting Christ, he is truly almost saved. He has attained almost heaven. Yet, yet thou lackest one thing, come and follow me. How many cries will there be in all eternity of people who have trusted their own goodness? Do you know what? It's the greatest stumbling block of their lives if you've shared the gospel with anybody, that's a stumbling block that comes up time and time and time again, doesn't it? I think I'm good enough. I think I'm good. I think my good outweighs my bad. Well, who doesn't believe that exactly? You know, We compare where? Do we compare vertically? No, again, we're running, the, the, we're running amiss. We're still comparing horizontally. Well, I'm better than that bloke. I'm better than her. Well, at least I don't. Or well, like in Jürgen's case, who doesn't? Do this and this and this. Who doesn't? They all do this and this and this. Everyone does this and this and this. You're not going to be judged according to what somebody else does. You're going to be judged according to your own sins, individually. How many people do you share the gospel with today who believe themselves to be good people? This goodness measured by themselves and compared among themselves will be the one thing that keeps their mind away from everlasting life. It's the primary objection of multitudes. And so hell will be populated by multitudes of moral people who offer to God their filthy rags. You will always have more chance of converting a man who knows he is wicked than converting one who believes that he is good. The fifth individual is the humanist. The humanist. The humanist. we got the example in 2 Kings, Kings chapter 5. Naaman, the captain of the host of the Syrian nation, came to Elisha to be recovered of his leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of sin in the scripture, but it's a physical leprosy that Naaman is dealing with. And in 2 Kings 5:10, Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman, Naaman betrays the heart of the humanist perfectly who desires to undertake such cleansing his own way. He wants to do it his own way. He responds in verse 12 saying, and not a Abana and Farpa, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went his way in a rage. And then obviously the, he had other people who were accompanying him and they steered him back to a better course. Well, if he had a, told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Well, how much more if he tells you to just wash and, wash and be clean? You know? But that's not the humanist. The humanist wants to enter in another way. They want their own way to determine which way they'll... Almost heaven. It's almost heaven for them. The scriptures present the modern humanists pretty well. These are those who deserve salvation. These are the philanthropists of today. These are the social justice warriors of today. These are the social reformers of today. These are those who think to change times and laws Indeed, they are destroyed by many good intentions. These are those the Bible speaks of as saying, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Well, today Bill Gates wants to solve the overpopulation problem with and through education. Today Bill Gates wants to solve world poverty through infertility. Today Bill Gates wants to solve viruses through gene therapies. Today, Bill Gates wants to solve global warming by darkening the sun. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. He wants to darken the sun with chalk dust. Chalk dust. He wants to have thousands of planes flying in the atmosphere to darken the sun. I don't mind him doing that over his backyard. That's cool. You know, but Not over mine. You know? and Admittedly, they don't know what the consequences are going to be. Anyway... The modern humanist says we don't need God. The modern humanist instead pretends to be God. These all think heaven is attained by their endeavours to make the world a better place. They think they just need to do more and then they will attain almost heaven. This is the humanist. There are a lot of Christian humanists as well. They also exist, people such as Rick Warren and... Tony Jones and Brian McLaren and Doug Paget and Rob Bell, Bill Hybels, etc. Their plan is not the gospel. In short, the reality of the effect of them trying to make the world a better place, the reality of the effect of these Christian humanists are, in effect, they want to make the world a better place to go to hell from because they have no interest in the gospel. Men such as this who profess Christ in name but have their hearts so far removed from him will find themselves occupying the place of many for whom Jesus simply asked, how shall they escape the damnation of hell? Jesus made a plain. He made a plain for all to believe. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And he shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. John 8.24, he writes, he says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. It's one way, it's Christ's way, it's not the way of the humanist, which is an individual as everybody else. They have almost heaven, but they are lost. The last... Individual that we will find in hell who, is, who attained almost heaven is, wait for it, the religious person. The religious person. The last of the people whose souls could attain almost heaven is the religious person. Jesus spoke of them. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Oh, mate, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Go there. Matthew chapter 23. And have a listen to how Jesus speaks to these religious individuals. Matthew 5.20, he actually says, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did you get that? Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, when we consider the force of the Lord's condemnation of the religious person... Uh, there seems to be little doubt that they are not going to be in heaven. Have a look from verse 25. And we'll read through to verse 36 to get the impact of it. I could have made it longer because he spends almost that entire chapter dealing with the Pharisees. But I want you to listen. We we speak about Jesus a lot of the times. We speak about Jesus a lot of times as sweet, gentle, mild-mannered Jesus. We don't think of him as God manifest in the flesh. It's the same individual in the Old Testament as in the New. But in the New Testament, he came to save, not to condemn. He came to save, to seek and to save that which is lost. He did the works that was promised in the Old. Okay, Yet his anger towards religious individuals is, well, it's demonstrated here. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, clean first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones." And of all uncleanness, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berkiahs whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. This is Christ. You see his, his anger towards the religious individual, to those who are pious on the outside. They've got all the goods on the outside. They look great. They look like that they uh, have almost heaven. And yet he condemns them into hell. It's Jesus who said, spoke about them and he says that they shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for they neither go in themselves neither suffer them that are entering to go in. These religious individuals are actually preventing other people who desire Christ. They themselves aren't even going in. They prevent them from going in. How many have fronted up to the Roman Catholic Church and knocked on their door and desired everlasting life and yet by the very individuals who are not going in themselves are prevented from entering into everlasting life. Their self-righteousness has opposed themselves and their own prudence and contrivances and righteousnesses have no more ability to keep them out of hell than a spider's web could have of stopping a falling rock. Let me close. There are six types of those whom the Bible gives as having almost heaven. These are those who are metaphorically floating in the waters of the North Atlantic. They hear the words of the dying evangelist as he wades toward them saying, is your soul saved? And who respond to themselves that they think so. Four years after the sinking of the Titanic, another young Scotsman whom the report refers to as Aguilar Webb stood up in that meeting in Ontario, Canada whose following testimony was recorded. I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spa that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, is your soul saved? No, I said, my soul is not saved. And he replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he said, now, is your soul saved? Is thy soul saved? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that my soul is saved. And he said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down under the waves and I saw him no more. And there, alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I believed on Christ and my soul was saved. I was one of only six people out of hundreds floating in the icy waters to be pulled into a lifeboat. I am John Harper's last convert. That phrase, that last phrase, you can look that up on the internet to get the story because that's really all we know about this guy. We don't. The name, oh, I've looked up the name... Uh, it's different. There's some different websites have a different name. So I'm not sure if that's even the individual. But if you look up, I am John Harper's last convert, you'll be able to read the entire story with regards to who John Harper was and, and, and what he did. But this individual, whoever he is, standing in contrast to the sermon this morning, we have here the testimony of the man who was almost lost. Lost. He had almost hell. He got through it and got out of it by the skin of his teeth. There will be a multitude in hell who were almost saved, but might you be the one who can testify that you were almost lost? I can't tell you how many examples there are in history of individuals who had given their life to Christ immediately a moment before they expired. How many do we have in hell that are the opposite, who are almost saved? Why should that be you? I mean, why should that be you? Why shouldn't you have almost heaven? Why can't you have heaven? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the only call that John Harper had. He took off that life. The story actually goes when he took off the life vest and gave it to another passenger, he said, I'm not planning on going down but going up. Imagine that confidence. Don't be almost saved. Don't have almost heaven. And don't let it dare be that this sermon will be one that you would remember in hell for all eternity because you will remember every gospel You will remember every sermon. Your conscience is going to be fully informed. It will not be darkened and it will be a torment for the rest of all eternity. This is the last of that series. It's not the last time I ever preach on hell. Everybody who knows me knows that I've I've spoken it from time to time. But the gospel is vitally important and it's the gospel that teaches the truth of it. Let me ask you, as a dying man, as a dying man, and preaching to dying men and women, is your soul saved? Is your soul saved? If not, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only you can work the work that needs to be worked in the lives of those who hear. Only you, dear Lord, can save a soul. And they, dear Lord, it is their will, dear Father, that must be changed. It is not their state, but their will. Their will to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that their salvation may be secured. I pray to your Father you would be with them. Open their hearts, open their eyes to see. Let them have ears to hear and a heart of understanding, willing to believe. Give you thanks for this time in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.